Hello, I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. Hello, Yonit. How are you doing this week? Hello, Jonathan. Well, it's a, you know, it's an eventful week here in Israel. Big uh, political achievement for the Bennett government. Uh, I'm going pretty heavy on the small talk, as you noticed. Um, <laughs> you know, almost five months after being sworn in, they managed to get a budget passed uh, last night with a razor-thin majority. You and I used to say this coalition is so diverse they can't agree on lunch. Well, they agreed on an economic blueprint. So this is a pretty big deal. This is why people want us as guests at their cocktail parties, because you and I, this is our idea of, of opening ice-breaking chit-chat to talk about the Israel budget. But you're, you're on home ground. I'm here, a lot I'm of fun in parties, Mr. Friedland. Yeah, I'll have you know. Us, both of us are your go-to guests, uh, because this is what we will bring to the festivities. No, I, I, but you're, no you're on home ground here, because I'm interested in this because as we've always said people gave this i mean netanyahu gave it you know five minutes and yet here they are reaching this milestone and uh, and getting a budget and so what's in it is there anything really striking in it well first of all i mean the the key thing about the budget i i would say is not whether it's a good one or a bad one but the fact that there is a budget um and, and this is very important vis-a-vis this specific government well we know this we've talked about this if the budget had not passed the knesset would automatically dissolve we would be headed for new elections now this is signaling to all of the players in the political arena, there is indeed a government. It is not on shaky legs anymore. Uh, and and uh, Bennett is the prime minister. I would just say, uh, just, you know, to, to note a small paradox in this whole story, right? We know, we still know that the glue holding this whole coalition together is, of course, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. The budget passing, the government now seemingly entrenched, means that this weakens Bibi. It might embolden his challengers in the Likud, thus eventually forcing him out. Once that happens, of course, the glue holding the government together weakens. But I think I've probably moved a bit, a little too forward in the future right now. No, but also I think, um, you know, people will remember that how agonizingly slow it was to get budgets through, even when he had big coalitions, etc. It would go right to the wire. Sometimes a year would go by where there was no budget. And yet here, this is this goes to that idea that the new government is capable and sort of adults in the room and, and all of that. It helps them in that way. I mean, it's good that we're talking about Bennett because Bennett is on people's radar um, in quite a big way. Um, outside Israel this week. I mean, not always, you know, a big figure, but he, you know, he was around. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, all in all a pretty good week for the uh, Israeli prime minister. All this is happening on the cusp of, you know, Glasgow's uh, COP26 uh, summit, him meeting with uh, world uh, leaders, cozying up to world leaders. And, you know, I would say he's probably living Netanyahu's dream, right? He's being there as the leader who dealt COVID a huge blow with the booster shots. This, for example, is what uh, British prime minister Boris Johnson said of him this week to Christian Amanpour. I had a very interesting conversation earlier on with Naftali Bennett of the uh, of Israel, Israel, and it's that third jab gives you a huge amount of protection. And conversely, if you don't have it, then the protection starts to wane. And uh, so, if you even if you've had two jabs, I think people need to wake up to the fact that uh, without the booster, kind of they are they now. are they are going to be less protected. And uh, we need them to, to get the boosters in the way that they, they got their first two. So that was Boris Johnson about Israel's handling of the COVID crisis. But of course, COP26 is about the environment. So let's talk about that. I think it's, it's interesting to know that on environmental issues, 
this is not something on the top agenda in Israel, right? I mean, this is a country that always seems seem like it's a country under existential threat, doesn't have time to deal with these issues, supposedly, right? We don't have a coal mining industry. I think it's Golda Meir used to say that Moses took us to the only place in the Middle East that doesn't have oil. So it's never been uh, a, such a, an issue or a debatable uh, issue in this country. So Naftali Bennett could actually use that to score points on an issue that is not something that Israelis are at all, sort of, it's not a controversy in this country at all. It, it plays to his advantage. No, I mean, that's interesting because the fact that it's not controversial in the way that it you know, has been in the United States, for example, doesn't necessarily mean a country's going to act on it. It could just be that they just don't talk about it at all. They all agree it's a problem, but don't deal with it. I'm interested in this about, you know, whether Israelis themselves have sort of got it on climate change and just environmental issues in general. You know, I'm sitting here in London, London Borough of Hackney, where we separate out our rubbish every week into black bins and green bins and food waste is a separate bin and it's all everyone's pretty on it you know and Mm -hmm. there is a kind of stigma about driving an old vehicle that pump you know is high emissions and people are very happy to virtue signal about cycling rather than getting the you know car and getting the train instead of the plane it's just now sort of part of the culture and you know, my impression from a distance of, of, of Israeli life is it's not quite like that. I'm being polite. I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just thinking back to the number of times we were talking. Like, I'm on my bike. <laughs> I'm on my yes. bicycle now. I'm cycling. So yes, um, to be. Oh, that's I the think, virtue signaling. You're upbraiding yes, me for virtue yes. signaling to you. Well, it's true. I have bit, done that. Just a little bit. Um, you noticed that, huh? I, uh, I I'll <laughs> tell you what. Look, Israelis, I, I think generally. Again, the the state, the collective state of mind is always that there's something more urgent, right? Again, we are a country that feels under existential threat. And if Iran, I don't want to sound flippant, but if Iran is going to throw a nuclear bomb at us, who cares about recycling, right? That is like the essential sort of uh, state of mind. So Israel is a country in which recycling is a little bit, is considered a little bit of a luxury. Uh, cars have doubled in the last decade. There are many, there's the public transport isn't exactly, let's say, efficient. So it's not an issue that I think Israelis have been dealing with uh, uh, in depth, the funny there's a joke about how the ministry relevant to this used to be called um, the Ministry for the Quality of the Environment, Sviva, and at some point they had to change it to Defense or Protection of the Environment, so that Israelis would take it seriously because they understand the word Defense or Protection, right? So now it's called Haganata Sviva. Um, so that would make you know try to make an attempt to make them more interested in this topic. By the way, Naftali Bennett again uh, driving this back to him. He's talking about things like making Israel like the clean tech or the green tech uh, hub, right, of the world, taking what we know about startup and about high tech and turning that into our new brand. I don't know if he'll be be successful. I have to say the discrepancy between saying this is a prime minister with a year and eight months on the clock and his legacy regarding the environment is, is an interesting sort of gap. But that is what he's trying to do. It does show great confidence for him to be making plans about 2050. <laughs> he was talking about zero emissions by 2050, which incidentally is when uh, Netanyahu was coming back as his, for his fourth <laughs> tenure as prime minister. So, you know, he's thinking ahead. He's thinking He's ahead. thinking ahead. Now, we did get into some of this at a quite a high sort of policy level in our conversation with uh, Ben Rhodes on the podcast last week. And that actually brought in a really interesting response from uh, an old friend of mine, British-born, lives on Kibbutz Tuval in Israel. His name is Robbie Gringrass, and he's a writer and performer but he said that actually he thought that we should not lose sight of the fact that 
because uh, we talked about the role that religion might play and, and what voice there is in that. And he said, you know, the non-Orthodox Jewish world, which is the vast majority in the United States, is all about the climate crisis. And he offered some really interesting examples in his letter. He said leading lights include Yossi Abramovich, who actually, I think I'm right in saying, is Sarah Silverman's brother-in-law. We can do a bit of Jewish geography here. He pushed for all the solar fields in the Negev and also set them up throughout Africa. There's a rabbi, Rabbi Julian Sinclair, who writes a lot about uh, solar power and its links. Apparently, the inventor of solar power was a Kabbalist and created the solar cell according to Kabbalah. And he mentions Nigel Savage, who set up a Chazon, a massive movement in the United States, which is the Jewish lab for sustainability. And he says, funnily enough, all three now live in Israel. And his point is that there is real overlap between Jewish thinking and Jewish values and the you know concern about the climate, uh, the notion of Shemitah, resting the land, etc., is really in touch uh, with the, the you know the, the the sharpest thinking on the environment. So you know this is a discussion. Thank you, Robbie, for in the, that sense, right? Right. I mean, you know, quite literal, physical yep. uh, repair of the world. And so, thank you to Robbie um, for for writing. And we do get. I heard, I heard two things like. from that letter, by the way. One is Jews rock. Second is you have a connection to Sarah Silverman. That's what I. That's what I took. From yeah. all of you, you know. No, you, you are quite right, because I did know, <laughs> your, we're going to do Jewish geography, I did know Yossi Abramovich <laughs> when I lived in Washington, and that's all true. When Yossi Abramovitz married Sarah Silverman's sister, um, she, Sarah Silverman, went on Saturday Night Live and said, so my, you know, sister's getting married, and their children, are, they're going to be very egalitarian, so their children will be called, you know, whatever, Abramovitz Silverman, or in other words, Jew. <laughs> Because what could be a more Jewish name than Abramovitz Silverman? Anyway, he is a great pioneer in solar matters. And so, you know, even if Israelis aren't doing all the recycling, there is a kind of Jewish take on the climate crisis. Yeah, and I'm going to add in, because we were discussing the budget, that there's a tax in this budget introduced to reduce uh, a single-use consumption, right? Israel produces like uh, twice the international average of plastic waste per person a day. So this is obviously going to uh, change uh, the equation, although it is also seen as something that is a move that hurts the orthodox community. We'll put a pin in that, but we will in future in a very uh, close episode discuss the situation between this coalition and the ultra-orthodox because that's a whole big mess that we should talk about. But you've got, we will, but you've got to get onto the thing of the plastic, the double use of single-use plastic. Why Israel uses so much single-use plastic in terms of plates and cutlery and all the rest of it? Who's the group who are using it? There is a large community of ultra-Orthodox in this country, uh, more than a million. When you have eight or nine or ten children, Jonathan, I just have three, and I understand the lure of single-day plastic uh, use, right? If you have that many children and a dishwasher is an issue because of kashrut uh, and an issue because it costs a lot of money, then you are bound to use a lot of these plastic uh, plates and plastic utensils. By the way, the night of this tax uh, actually becoming a law. You had long lines of ultra-Orthodox, you know, waiting to buy this at half price before the, the price goes up. So yes, generally speaking, I'd say Israelis are not focused enough on this issue, but specifically when you have that big a population uh, that uses this on a day-to-day basis, and that's those are the numbers you're going to get, I mean. And, and I of can course, Most verify. of it ends up in the beaches. I can verify and corroborate the Haredi usage of single plastic and plastic plates and cutlery. I say no more. 
about the bags of rubbish that I see on my street. I say no more, but just to verify, confirm and corroborate every word you have said there. Now, the thing about these, I mentioned uh, before that one of the interesting things about the summit was that, you know, there was Israel doing something other than the conflict. Um, and that was partly because Naftali Bennett was being asked about uh, Israel's handling of COVID. Uh, but there was also, um, you know, Israel sort of made the news and British ministers here were talking about the Israeli delegation to the COP26 summit for other reasons. Yeah, I mean, you know, if if we were giving out awards just for the Glasgow summit, I think the uh, Karina Larar story, the story of the Minister of Energy in Israel would get the the organizers of the COP26 a, a chutzpah award. I mean, right, Israel's minister who can't enter because she's in a wheelchair. So yeah, let's save the planet, but please don't do it from a wheelchair. I mean, how is it possible that this place is not wheelchair accessible? I think this was hugely embarrassing for the hosts, actually. Um, you know, just the story went around that there was the energy minister who could not get into the conference and had to go back to her hotel because she was disabled. And it was interesting, I thought, just because, you know, there will be all these people in British progressive circles who would want to normally attack the government for not having full access to all delegates, but found themselves sort of hesitating because what, should, don't, don't we kind of want to boycott Israel anyway and maybe they shouldn't be at the summit? So how outraged can I get? I hate the Tories for barring people because of disability. On the other hand, I can't get that outraged that the Israeli wasn't allowed to take part. So I, I felt there was a bit of tongue-tied uh, hesitancy among some of our friends on social media about this issue who, who but do no, you dislike very, very, more <laughs> yeah who do we dislike exactly but but um but it was you know the Br british ministers were uh, hauled before uh, bbc microphones to explain themselves and to yeah, sort and then, of say and how they've done it and, and there was no good answer i mean it is embarrassing Right, and then the Prime Minister had to apologize. Boris Johnson had to apologize to her. Uh, if we are on the issue of, you know, it's not our official chutzpah and mensch, but let's give a mensch award. If we're talking about the summit, let's give a mensch award to our uh, favorite chancellor, uh, Angela Merkel, who brought Good along God, her likely successor, Olaf Schulz, to the meetings, thus emphasizing continuity. Of course, he's from a rival party. I mean, he used to be part of the coalition, but still, I mean, just compare that to the 30-minute handover Netanyahu allocated, uh, Naftali Bennett, and you see that that is quite a... Uh, Quite a, quite a move on her part, I think. It was quite sweet in a kind of take-your-successor-to-work day. <laughs> um, it had that sort of vibe about it, because um, she's been around so long and he's going to continue. But I agree with you, there was something very civilised about... Uh, you know, letting the letting him have some on-the-job experience. Exactly. Um, and we will, uh, spoiler alert, the succession word will come up later in our program as well. Yes, exactly. Um, for fans of Succession, stay with us. We have our <laughs> very own take on that. All right, so that's COP26, which is a, a big deal and continues because um, the negotiators are still at work for, I think, at least another week. But we thought, I thought we should talk um, about uh, events in what is Europe's biggest Jewish community, uh, not here in Britain, but in France, where things have taken a really extraordinary turn because every time a French presidential election uh, looms, people worry always about the Le Pen factor. And it's, you know, in 2002 and again last time where a Le Pen, either the father Jean-Marie or the daughter Marine, is on the ballot and, you know, the, the everyone uh, who isn't a kind of nationalist or uh, a fascist adjacent thinks let's rally to defeat the Le Pen. Well, now there is a challenge to Le Pen from the right, an ultra-nationalist who has said things, I have to say, as offensive as the kinds of things you hear out of the Le Pen dynasty, except 
he is a Jew. And we are talking about Eric Zemmour, a French Jew of Algerian origin, who is, some people say, is a cross between Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson. He's a journalist. He's in his 60s. Um, uh, but he has a TV talk show in a kind of Tucker Carlson way. And he is being talked up as a potential presidential candidate. There is huge interest and sort of energy uh, in in his in the possibility that he might run. He had a book out in September. It immediately sold a hundred thousand copies in its first week. The title is France has not yet said her last word. Uh, Ultra nationalist, even Jean Marie Le Pen himself, age ninety three, has said that he will. Um, back Zamor. He's fallen out with his daughter. There's, you know, it's not just Jewish families she, that have Boigas. <laughs> yeah, she's a bit right. too moderate for him. A bit for too moderate. Days, he for says, his liking. He says, Le Pen says, he says what I think. He's talking about Eric mm-hmm. Zamor. He says what I think, but to a large audience, the only difference between Eric and me is that he is Jewish. It is difficult to call him a Nazi or a fascist. This gives him more freedom. Yeah, you know, this is... <sighs> just a a remarkable and even mind-boggling story. I mean, first of all, the comparison to Trump, I would say he's a more sophisticated version of Trump, right? I mean, he's what my friend in Paris would call a superficial intellectual. You know, he wrote history books. He was a columnist, a political pundit on television, as you said. Um, He's Trump with the French uh, idiosyncrasies. uh, And that is important because when we're talking about a world in which we don't know which way the pendulum is swinging, right? Are we moving to populism or to pragmatism? You have this kind of populist 2.0 who's more refined, not in content, than uh, Marine Le Pen, but definitely in style. I think that's something to note. And of course, the main sort of twist here in all of this kind of twisted story is the fact that he is indeed Jewish. Now, it's it's amazing. I mean, the thing that the things that he is saying, right, that the uh, Vichy regime actually protected French Jews, which is unbelievably offensive, right? We're 26 years after Jacques Chirac admitted uh, the uh, France's uh, complicity with the Nazis, acknowledging the nation's role in the deportation of Jews. He's saying that Alfred Dreyfus may not be innocent. This is a dog whistle and signaling to the far right. He's saying that French children, Jewish children, killed in a terror attack in Toulouse are not properly French because they were buried in Israel. This is beyond offensive. And if it's anyone who wasn't Jewish, you would say without hesitancy that this is anti-Semitic. The fact that he is Jewish allows him, I think, sadly or tragically, to say these things and kind of get away with it, right? I mean, that is, I think, what is most most appalling uh, about him. I agree completely. I mean, I, let's add him, by the way, to our list of journalists and TV personalities who must not be a, a, allowed anywhere near power. I know this is a, a, an enduring theme of ours. I mean, it is hard to choose. What, it, what is the most offensive of the things he has said? I mean, that defense of the Vichy regime and suggesting, you know, oh, no, they, they only wanted to deport foreign Jews, not French-born ones. And again, that's totally at odds uh, with the facts. But this line on Dreyfus, as you mentioned, saying, you know, we will never know if he was innocent or not. Right. I mean, what and, a thing and I think that is... To say. Th- and and I was just going to say, yeah. sorry, I was just going to say the thing about, you mentioned about the children and the and their you know father killed in that terror attack in Toulouse, the actual words are so chilling. He says, because they, as you said, because they were buried in Israel, they were foreigners above all and wanted to stay that way even beyond death. I mean, that is so hideous as a thing to say about children who were in the little girl famously pulled by the hair and then killed it is so appalling um and and yet i think there are going to be people who think well somehow it's legit 
because he's Jewish. And there are French Jews who we know who are feeling very uh, uh, under pressure because of the rise in French anti-Semitism, who will rally to a message that, and this is Eric Zemmour's main message, of mm -hmm. anti-Muslim French nationalism. Mm -hmm. And he's calling out French Muslims and there are a constituency of French Jews, some saying particularly Algerian and Moroccan Jews, North African Jews like him, who are ready to hear that message. But I find it deeply chilling. Yeah, but there is a group of, of course, uh, many, many Jews who, you know, I spoke to a friend who said, you know, I don't speak a word of Hebrew, but the word I want to say is Busha. I'm embarrassed that this man uh, is 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 making inroads in 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 uh, you know in French politics. And again, we we keep thinking. I think that the sort of rational part of our brain is saying, yeah, this can't happen, right? It's not going to happen in France, right? He doesn't have a political party yet. By the way, didn't, neither did Macron five years ago, um, and this can't happen. But we lived through uh, 2016. We know that the inconceivable can become the inevitable. This man can become president, and I think that is we need to point out. The, you know, what he is saying, what he's standing for. By the way, I listened to, a, a, you know, many, many videos of his. He's very compelling. You're walking with this argument. He goes through history. You're like, okay. And then he says something terrible, like we have to fight to the death against cancel culture, right? Or all, you know, Arab, million Arab Muslims hate France, live in France, but hate France. All kinds of stuff that you are sort of appalled by. By the way, just to note, uh, this never goes without hand-in-hand hand, a television media mogul, uh, in this uh, uh, case, uh, Vincent Bolloré, who is the head of, uh, I would call him the French uh, Rupert Murdoch, or French Rupert Murdoch, before the 2020 elections, right, who's supporting him. He has this sort of Fox News uh, channel that backs him. He's also responsible for a lot of other publications, and, and et cetera. So he's a very powerful man standing behind this. I, I would take this very, very seriously. I agree. And I think two other reasons, uh, we, one of the, which we've mentioned, why he might do much better than uh, Jean-Marie Jean Le Pen or Marine Le Pen. First of all, he's not called Le Pen. And I think part of that impulse that made the right, uh, the, everyone except the right unite to block uh, the Le Pen's was it was just a kind of um, reflex that it, there was a habit there. Oh, we know what to do. That you know, we, when a Le Pen is on the ballot, everyone unites either behind Chirac or Macron. They do it. That is not going to be there this time. And second of all, is the obvious one, which is it is harder, always harder, to brand a Jew a racist and anti-Semite. I note that the French chief rabbi has called him an anti-Semite, but it is harder when that person is Jewish. And, you know, uh, just, I mean, to add to the list, Bernard-Henri Lévy, the big French Jewish intellectual, uh, Zamor calls him a traitor and a cosmopolitan. I mean, those are, you know, the, those are not dog whistles. Those are kind of foghorns, right? We know what he's saying. Those are old anti-Semitic tropes. Uh, and yet Zamor is able to do it. And, and yeah, I, I think there is zero room for complacency after we've seen what Trump can do. Um, but this is, the, he has some other cards to play that make him actually even stronger. Yeah. So uh, shall we uh, <laughs> some lighten the mood? With some uh, infighting in New York, among New York Jews. Are you, have you got a chutzpah, a chutzpah award to dole out? I always have a chutzpah award, Jonathan. You can wake me up in the middle of the night. I will have a chutzpah award for, <laughs> you know, you or anyone it, else. If I do yes. that, I'll be on my bike and I'll be <laughs> saying to you, I'm cycling your need and I want it just because I care about the environment. <laughs> And I wanted you to come up with this week's Chutzpah Award. Um, so this story really reads like, I mean, I would say uh, an HBO drama, really. It's the story of the succession, New York's probably most famous, wealthy, important shul, the Park East Synagogue on the Upper East Side. Now, 91-year-old 
Arthur Schneier is the synagogue's senior rabbi who fired his very popular assistant, Rabbi Benjamin Goldschmidt. He's 34 years old. Uh, and he was, you know, kind of generally seen as the would-be successor. Um, the people who support the older rabbis say that Benjamin Goldschmidt basically tried to stage a coup d'etat and failed. Now, there's all kind of fishy money issues in this. Schneier serves as a full-time rabbi. He also draws salary from the foundation he runs. His son has been married six times. He's a sort of always on page six of the New York Post. This whole story is unbelievable drama. On the way, and I think there's enough chutzpah to go around. I mean, it's the 34-year-old rabbi who couldn't wait and couldn't be patient. The 91-year-old rabbi who has no you know, plans to either retire or say who his successor is, you know, and you just kind of ask the question, so who is responsible here, the congregation, the board, the rabbi? It's a big mess, Jonathan. So if Logan and Kendall Roy spoke <laughs> Yiddish and were rabbis, this is what the story would it's be. It's Logan it Oi. It's Logan Oi instead of Logan Roy, and you can do the whole story. I really want to hear it. I want to have the soundtrack in with a sort of klezmer band playing. I can, t- it is just I can tell you that... Delicious. Uh, David Beshevkin on Twitter cast the whole story as a Hollywood film. I'm not going to give it away because it's pretty amazing. Mila Kunis is there. That's all I'm going to say. That's oh, that's, no, that is just too good. Um, we, meanwhile, have to hand out a Mensch Award. Um, and I think I'm my nominee for this week will be students at George Washington University and particularly of a fraternity there. It's not a Jewish fraternity, but they had and they have Jewish members. Uh, and part of the ritual of initiation at the Tau Kappa Epsilon Fraternity at GWU involved a replica, sort of toy version of a Sefer Torah, which they kept in the basement, the Torah scroll. Um, last week, the uh, fraternity was attacked and vandalized by a gang of students who damaged the replica uh, Sefer Torah and the Torah scroll and threw detergent over it and ruined it. I was about to say desecrated. That's part of the question here because it wasn't a real Sefer Torah, which, as we know, is a hugely sacred object in Judaism. It takes a year to hand inscribe every letter and even slight damage renders it immediately unkosher. Um, there's an argument going on at the university about whether or not this was an anti-Semitic attack or whether it was just random students randomly being drunken and violent. But it was noticed that a Christian Bible, a New Testament, uh, so-called, uh, in the fraternity, base, fraternity basement was not damaged. And so, look, either way, um, I think the mention war goes to students there who did uh, react and marched uh, in solidarity with the students at that fraternity and said that this was uh, an attack that to be condemned. And I think the reason why they get the mention award is even if, let's say it was just random vandalism and it wasn't um, a very deliberate attack on Jews, you know, and that's an if, uh, even if it wasn't, nevertheless, the solidarity they showed with Jewish students and suggesting that they understood why this would make Jewish students feel, you know, under siege a bit. Um, and also the Jewish students there who just took it seriously and thought that, you know, you don't go around behaving this way. Uh, I, I think that's um, worthy of note. See, this is why you do the Mensch. You're so good at it. It's such a good, <laughs> good nominee. No, um, we're, gonna, we're not going to pull it. We're not going to get into any <laughs> fixed roles on this. It will be chutz for me next time. I know, I promise. <laughs> I've exaggerated my complaint last time. Um, so we are winding up our uh, discussion. Jonathan, I will have you know that Israel now accepts tourists 
who have been uh, vaccinated. So no excuses, no excuses, just saying. No excuses at all. It will happen. It will happen imminently. And then we will be face-to-face -face across a single microphone. I yes, look forward and then to that like moment. a Jewish mother that you are, we must add, you can tell me again that I don't eat enough. We can go through the whole <laughs> thing again. Um, so we shall meet next week and we shall give our thank yous to Leol Friedman, our executive producer, Rom Atik, head of podcasts, Omer Primat, and Irad Eshel for original music. And we are grateful to all of you who have been giving us very high five-star review um, ratings on um, the various platforms. Do write a review if you can, partly just because we do love to see what you think, uh, and that will be great, and, um, and recommend us to your friends. And we'll see each other next week. See you, Yoni. <laughs>